Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had the Stephen James endorsement already appeared. In our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard Conference. And the 2015 Carol Award for the new novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian-type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. As we're nearing the end of the novel Clinch, and therefore the end of season one of the podcast Clinch, uh, I would like to take a moment to invite you to listen to uh, some of my other podcasts. I don't know how I got in so deep, you guys. It's a mystery to me, but you can listen to me blather on and on in any number of contexts. Most people who listen to Clinch probably first uh, learned of it through the Gut Check podcast, which is a, a program I co-host with my friend Ted Cluck. He was on a couple weeks ago, and we have written books together, published books together, um, and you know, done all sorts of different uh, media stunts and uh, projects together. And that podcast, honestly, it's just completely goofy. Uh, we review energy drinks as if they were fine wines. We talk about the, the nose, the bouquet. We we uh, compare them to all sorts of uh, ridiculous things, just like, you know, the kind of aesthetic exercise in a, in a wine uh, connoisseur or cigar connoisseur publication. Uh, there's a little chocolate on the finish, only it's more like uh, there's a little, you know, new tennis shoe smell uh, in there. Uh, we've also reviewed tacos on the air. We talk a lot about 90s pop culture, about uh, Christian culture, um, especially the the stupid stuff that's, uh, you got to either laugh or cry, so we always laugh. Uh, and we have a thing called Gut Check Literacy Month, which is kind of the inspiration for Clinch. It's us reading, maybe half the time we read a chapter of a, a novel uh, that we've written. Uh, the first one was called Re-Raptured, and now it's the sequel, Re-Raptured Again, uh, and it's kind of a send-up of Left Behind and a Thief in the Night movies and all that kind of uh, end-time scare stuff that you see in the church. If that sort of thing would freak you out or offend you, we don't mean to mock you. I would just probably steer clear of that podcast. Uh, this is for people who have kind of a weird sense of humor. So if you haven't checked out Gut Check, uh, check it out, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Another podcast I am co-hosting, uh, I just started recently. I think we're on number five now, or six, uh, that I've been on. It's called These Go to Eleven, which, yes, is a reference to Spinal Tap, but is also a reference to the fact that the podcast drops every Tuesday night, uh, beginning such that the program will come to an end at 11. But, of course, you can listen to it anytime you want. You can find, uh, just like a, with Gut Check, you can find it on Stitcher, iTunes. You can listen to it on your Amazon Echo and these go to 11 is it's more serious in topic, although it often is kind of goofy in tone as well. We've been talking a lot about Striper lately. If you don't remember Striper, then I just all I can say is I'm sorry for you. 
but we do discuss uh, theology, practical theology mostly, uh, things going on in the church, things going on in culture, particularly stuff with, with religious implications. We often will have people on and interview them about books they've written or articles they've written or uh, something they've become embroiled in. Uh, I've listened to it for years, and I was super excited uh, just about two months ago uh, for Nathan to ask me to to step in and co-host it with him. So Nathan Bell and I host These Go to Eleven together. Give that a listen if it sounds like your cup of tea. I'd say that uh, that one and Gut Check are kind of two sides of the same coin, a yin and a yang, one uh, kind of amusement and one kind of wrestling with uh, topics and stuff that that concerns a Christian living in the culture we're living in today. Also, technically, I guess I have a fourth podcast because uh, if you go on iTunes, you can find it. There's an RSS feed, uh, and that is that you can listen to my sermons. As you might imagine, I preach a sermon every Sunday, and uh, these are always recorded and put up uh, on my church's website, but also there's a feed. You can go, you can find it on iTunes. You, I think you can find that one in Stitcher and all those other places as well. If you just look up uh, Reverend Zachary Bartle's sermons. Uh, and you can find all these things um, listed together if you just go to www.zacharybartles.com slash podcasts. You'll find a big stack of podcasts I'm involved in there. I tend to preach through books of the Bible rather than topically or just picking a, a scripture here or there or following a lectionary. So if you're interested in listening to sermons through the book of Joshua or the book of Revelation, you can find that on my website as well. And of course, there's Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. And even though we're coming close to the end here, uh, I want to uh, tell you about a couple of exciting things. One is that you will be able to get the book uh, in paperback. I'm hoping to make that available before season one comes to an end so that I can sort of uh, shill it on the last episode. Of course, it will also be an ebook. Uh, and, you know, I would say audiobook, but that ship has sort of sailed incrementally, has it not? Uh, and even more exciting is that I have plans now in motion uh, for season two, and I think you're going to love it. I do have some ideas for, for some more clinch rock uh, YA novels, uh, but those are not going to be anywhere near ready uh, by the time season two is set to begin in late July. No, instead, I'm going to bring in a variety of talented people to share short stories, as well as the same sort of uh, publishing insider information, publishing experiences, writing advice, all the same sort of stuff uh, that we've been looking at in uh, season one. Only rather than it being me doing a lot of interviews, it will mostly be people just sharing uh, directly with you. You know, so maybe you'll have uh, one author one week and then another author for two or three weeks. You'll hear some names that you're familiar with from season one, like Marissa Schrock and uh, me, of course. I've got uh, a couple of short stories I'm going to share in season two. And then I've got some big names. I'm very excited about this. Danny Petrie, Deanne Mills, Susie Finkbeiner, Jocelyn Green, and of course, New York Times bestselling author Cliff Graham. I've got some new voices. Uh, my wife, Erin Bartles, uh, who's got a couple of books coming out with Ravel, one of them next January, and we'll be able to get some insight into what that's like. A couple of guys from this group called The Weaklings, Andy Rogers, Josh Mosey, 
And that's not all. I've got other people uh, in the works, in the hopper, ready to go. So it's going to be exciting. Uh, do not unsubscribe simply because season one is done. In fact, tell all your friends uh, to get ready for season two should be yet more exciting. And speaking of which, that is actually all I've got this week on the Not Fiction Tip. So without further ado, let's get back to Trenton and Judith in the little town of Clinch Rock. Clinch, a novel. Chapter 29. Trenton was right about their destination, as it turned out. Terrell guided the squad car up the rutted dirt drive to the historic lumber camp at 35 miles an hour, heedless to the complaints of the car's suspension. Trent bounced in the back seat, once again cuffed but no longer secured by a seatbelt. His face made contact with the metal cage more than a few times. The undefined shapes in the darkness just outside the missing window were calling to him, but he dared not answer. Restrained as he was, he'd probably break his neck trying to exit the vehicle, and even if he made it, he could see Terrell following him out toward the woods with that giant spotlight and picking him off like a buck from a deer blind. As they pulled up to the renovated bunkhouse, the cruiser's headlights illuminated first the old red truck he'd seen the morning of the robbery, and then Brian Green, standing just outside the door, face hard and cold. His features were unmistakably Brian's, but to Trent, he looked like someone else entirely. He wasn't even wearing a vest. Terrell killed the engine and unwedged himself from the driver's seat, this time kind enough to open the door for Trent. Out, he ordered. The sole of Trent's shoe sunk a quarter inch into the spongy ground as he stepped out, and it occurred to him that this was pretty much how he felt on the inside as well, his thoughts heavy, wavering somewhere between complete resignation and concocting a long and elaborate escape plan that he knew he'd never enact. Hello, Trenton, Brian said. Zoe will be so happy to see you. He gestured at the door, as if inviting a friend in for a chat, and Terrell shoved his prisoner into the long wooden building and down the aisle between the rows of bunks. He could hear Sean limping behind them, taking up the rear. The first thing Trent noticed, other than the smell of fresh-cut pine, was that out of maybe fifty bunks, only one was made up. As he passed it, he recognized Zoe's sleeping bag, the one he'd carried to her car a week and a half earlier. He felt his spirits fall further. So they had caught up to her before she could leave town, and if they weren't bluffing about holding her captive, they probably weren't bluffing about Dad, either. Terrell shoved him again. Keep moving. It's like the Green Mile, right? Sean laughed. How so? Brian asked. I don't know. I never saw it. A moment later, they emerged from the bunks into a small sitting area containing a few benches, a rough-cut table, and a single chair, where Zoe sat, gagged and bound, tears streaking her cheeks. Zoe! Trent rushed toward her instinctively, but Terrell's long legs shot out, sending him down to the hardwood floor, where he found himself looking at Zoe's ankles, duct-taped to the legs of the chair. He guessed her wrists must be taped as well, wedged in behind her slender frame. They locked eyes for a moment, hers full of abject terror, and in that moment, Trenton knew one thing for certain— there was no possible scenario in which these men let either of them go. 
Someone jerked Trent to his knees, and only then did he notice Mike Van Buren standing behind her holding a handgun to Zoe's head. You find the diary? he asked Terrell. Yeah, the cop answered, but this little twerp threw it in a ditch. Doubt you'll be able to read it. Sean set the old book down on the table and shrugged an apology. Maybe once it dries out, but the good news is our little junior detective here has read the whole thing, haven't you? Trent could only shake his head no, his eyes never leaving the gun at Zoe's temple. Well, Mike said, I hope for her sake you learned something useful. Adam killed the headlights and slowed to a crawl. What are we doing here? Jesse asked. Officer Cash said we'd find them at the old sawmill. At this point, he's got no reason to lie. Ex-Officer Cash, Adam corrected, and he lies because he's a liar. He doesn't need a reason. Anyway, I pinged the GPS locator in Terrell's cruiser. It's just up ahead here. In fact, this is probably far enough. He pulled off the drive between some trees and back into the woods about 20 feet. There he parked and turned off the ignition. You ready? He asked, drawing his sidearm. I don't know, Chief. Jesse studied his lap. I, I, I don't know about this. Adam sighed impatiently. I thought you said you were with me, Jesse. I, I am. It's just... Don't you think we should wait for backup? Backup? Who? I don't know. Stadies? Sheriff's Department? Kendra, at least. I bet you a case of Pabs she's right down the road at Eastwood Lanes. Yeah, Adam said. And I bet she's had more than a few. You can wait if you want. I'm going after my son. You know I can hear you guys, right? Judith said from the back seat. This is totally hurting my feelings. Well, I guess I'll have to live with that, Adam said. Then what did you bring me for? Honestly, I didn't trust you not to do something foolish and get yourself killed, and I sure couldn't leave you locked up next to John Cash with no one standing guard. I already saved Trent's life at least once today, Judith said. I can help you. Look, I'm grateful for what you've done. I am. But you're staying in here. I thought we had an understanding. That I'd let you do your job, and now I want to help you do your job. There's no conflict there. The chief opened the door and swung a leg out. Just stay here, okay? For me? Not like I have a choice. She poked at the metal cage, separating her from the front seat. If you want to help, Adam said, pray for Trent. She stared out the window and nodded. I love you, Judy Bug. Love you too, she murmured. Adam met Jesse around the back of the car and opened the trunk. You've always been a better shot than me with these things, he said, indicating the 12-gauge pump. You want it? You know it. Jesse chambered a slug, and the two of them began slowly working their way through the darkness of the woods. So this is simple, Mike said. I have some simple, straightforward questions for you. You give me simple answers, and the girl's head stays a nice, simple, round shape with the shiny hair and the pretty brown eyes. You screw with me? Things get complicated. The room was silent. The four men and two captives all poised in the moment, barely daring to breathe. First question, where'd you find the book? Trent struggled to gather his thoughts. It's, uh, it was a secret room in our basement. It was in an old desk with a letter from Wolcott. And when did you find it? A week ago? About that. Mike's eyes skipped to Zoe and back to Trent. And you expect me to believe that in a week's time, you didn't read the whole thing, knowing it contained clues to the whereabouts of millions of dollars. How dumb do you think I am? I don't... not dumb. Not dumb. I, I read a lot of it. 
And honestly, I think I know where the... All at once, Trenton had no one's attention. The men were all looking past him, back toward the door, toward some movement. It was only after the fact that he remembered hearing his dad shout, Police! Drop your weapons! Now! Then everything went fast forward and slow-mo at the same time. He saw Sean raise the rifle at his side and heard the crack of a gunshot echoing off every surface. Sean dropped the weapon and stumbled back into the unfinished wood of the wall, leaving a crimson trail as he slid down to the floor. Mike hesitated, then dropped his pistol and raised his hands. Terrell and Brian raised theirs as well. Put them on your heads! Fingers interlocked! Jesse barked, walking into view, shotgun up and at the ready. They all complied. Trenton felt himself lifted gently to his feet by his dad's strong hands and then embraced for just a moment. You okay, son? he asked. Yeah, I I think. Trent was in a bit of a fog, of course, but that was okay. It was over. Finally. Okay, then. I'll tend to the injured man, his dad said. Trent, why don't you free the young lady and Jesse? Head on a swivel. Anybody makes a move, put him down. Yes, sir. Adam had already rolled Sean onto his back and was applying pressure to the wound on his shoulder by the time Trent shook off the daze and took a step towards Zoe, bound in the chair. He'd lost track of how many guns had been pointed at him and fired near him in the past 24 hours, but he was certainly not getting used to it. If anything, the opposite. He pulled the gag from Zoe's mouth and asked, Are you okay? I think so, she rasped gazing up at him, her eyes sad and scared, her beautiful face streaked with mascara. Trent felt sorry for her, but nothing more. What was that song, You're Just Somebody That I Used to Know? Zoe wasn't even that. Everything he thought he knew about her had been a lie. We okay to call this in? Jesse asked. Yeah, just the ambulance, for this guy. Between my car and Terrell's, you and I bring the rest into custody. Not taking any more chances tonight. Jesse hit the transmit button on his shoulder-mounted radio and said, Central, 2 Charlie 6, shots fired. I have a man down with a GSW to the shoulder. I need a rig at my location. We are signal one. Current location, um... He released the button. Anybody know the address out here? Trent chuckled and turned his attention to Zoe's ankles, wrapped several times over in duct tape, and yet not taped to the chair. Well, that was easy. Turn around, he said, gently guiding her out of the seat by her shoulders. Let me get your wrists. Zoe stood, brought a compact pistol from behind her back, and fired two shots into Jesse's chest. More gunshots. Judith dropped the other porcelain wing to the filthy floor mat and stomped it with her heel. After the first shot, she'd almost busted out to get a look at things. Now she wished she had. The window disintegrated on contact with the shards of the aluminum oxide porcelain, and Judith was out of the car and into the night in a moment. She moved quickly through the trees, the same direction she'd watched Adam and Jesse disappear. Zoe pushed the muzzle of the gun against Trent's spine and dragged him backwards to where Jesse lay wheezing on the floor. With one solid kick, she sent the shotgun sliding over to Mike, who grabbed it up and turned it on Adam. Trent, would you be a deer and get his sidearm, she said, and don't try anything stupid or you'll end up just like him. Trent obeyed, pulling the handgun from Jesse's paddle holster. He was surprised at how calm he felt. Was this shock? Resignation to his fate? Or was it just that this whole thing seemed unreal? Now drop it, Zoe ordered, and kick it over to Brian. 
Terrell had now drawn his own gun and relieved Adam of his. In the course of ten seconds, the tables had completely turned. Officer Terrell, Brian said, where does Marsh keep his backup piece? How should I know? Brian leveled the gun at the chief. Where is it, Marsh? Backup piece? Adam chuckled, mirthlessly. In Clinch Rock? He pulled up both pant legs to his knees, revealing nothing but black socks. Sometimes I don't carry a gun at all. He went back to applying pressure to Sean's wound. Uh, is he going to die? Zoe demanded. Yeah, if he doesn't get some medical attention soon, Adam said. So will Jesse. You want to spend the rest of your life in prison? Cop killers tend to get the maximum. Let's finish that call for an ambulance. You want two more deaths on your conscience? Not two, Sean insisted. I'm fine. Takes more than a slug in the shoulder to keep me down. I'm wily coyote meets the friggin' Energizer bunny. He tried to sit up, cried out in pain, and flopped back to the ground. What a mess, Zoe said, her eyes drifting from Jesse to Sean to the chief and his son. I blame you for this, she said, her gaze finally landing on Brian. This is on you. You must be joking. How is this my fault? I told you to wait until Marsh was out of the picture. A couple more months and we would have owned the police department. You said that two months ago. It's not my fault he kept putting off retirement, and it's not my fault you've got no patience. If you want someone to blame, take a look in the mirror. Zoe shook her head and clucked her tongue. Take some responsibility for once, Brian. You overpromised and underdelivered again. I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you go. Honey, Mike leveled the shotgun at the slender man and blasted him to the ground. The gears in Trenton's mind ground to a halt, unable to even begin processing what he had just seen. Sure, in the back of his mind, he'd always known that he and Zoe never really connected on any kind of a deep level. And considering the fact that their breakup had taken place while she was breaking into his house, they hadn't parted on the best of terms, but nothing could have prepared him for this. Watching Zoe murder her father casually like she was swiping left on her cell phone. Then again... Brian Green wasn't really her father. In fact, Trenton knew very little about this woman, other than the fact that her name was Zoe Frobisher, she was 22 years old, and came from Vermont. And add to that, of course, that she was a cold-blooded killer who would not hesitate to take multiple lives if it meant finding the money. Zoe was rubbing her temples as if warding off a stress headache in the middle of a particularly difficult conference call. What a waste, she said. He was right about one thing, though. My patience has run out. I know you don't want to hear this, Trent, but I think it's time to say goodbye to Dad. I know where the money is, Trent blurted. It's here at the camp. I'll, I'll take you to it. Just don't hurt him. Mm-hmm. You'll forgive me if I'm a tad skeptical, Zoe said. If you're buying time, you can't afford much. No, I swear, it's, it's where they first met, right? February 3, 1898. I found it in the diary. I can show you exactly where it is. Mike shrugged. Worth a look. We got nothing else to go on. Zoe seemed to consider this for a moment before saying, Okay, here's what we'll do. Terrell, you stay here with your brothers in blue. Anyone who's still breathing, try and keep them that way. For now. We're going on a little field trip with Trenton. Any of you tries anything cute... You all die. Understood? No one answered, but it was clear. They all understood. Judith watched from just outside the building's lone window, 
as Trent led Zoe and Mike back toward the door. This was good. She'd been helpless to intervene while the enemy was fortified and heavily armed. She had no smoke bombs, no flashbangs. Any attempt to catch the enemy by surprise would likely end in at least one of the marshes shot dead. But now they were giving up their advantage. One of them lay dead on the floor, and the rest were separating, two of them heading out into the darkness, unaware that they were about to become the prey. Adam could handle himself. She was willing to bet on that, but saving Trent was up to her. Deep down, she'd always known. This is why she'd become the Angelus in the first place. Judith moved silently through the darkness, ready to pick up the trail. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2018, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2018, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 